I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? The most important resource you have as a human being in terms of getting something done is your energy and recruiting the energy of others and surrounding yourself with really extraordinary people who really believe in the mission. The thing I'm most proud of in all the work that I did over all these years is the is the extraordinary talent base that we assembled, the faculty we had on our Human Performance Institute staff was like, for me, the greatest group of people I could ever assemble. And I really feel like a lot of the genius that came out of what we discovered came from the amalgamation of all these great people. They're all very other directed. They're not, none of them were after money, fame or glory. They just want to make a contribution. Dr. Jim Lair is a best-selling author, world-renowned performance psychologist, and co-founder of the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. He has worked with hundreds of world-class performers from the areas of sports, business, medicine, law enforcement, including Fortune 100 executives, FBI hostage rescue teams, and military special forces. On this episode, Dr. Lair lays out a systematic framework for developing one's character, which after 30 years of experience and research, he believes is the most important factor for successful achievement, personal fulfillment, and life satisfaction. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. 
So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Dr. Jim Lair, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm very good. I, uh, I'm excited to be with you, Sean, and I hope we can create some uh, real value for uh, your audience. Yeah, value is something you seem to have continued to create, uh, not only for myself personally, but many of the people that I'm close with. And when I, when I get to talk to people like you who've sustained excellence for so long, I always seem like they have certain routines that they've done consistently throughout their career. Is there anything that's just been foundational for you? Well, it's so interesting. Um, I've always had a passion to learn new things, and I, I've, uh, I have a lot of energy. I, I have routines in the morning that I follow, and I, you know, a lot of that I learned over the years from all the high performers that I had an opportunity to work with. Uh, but I have a very pronounced ritual in the morning that uh, kind of sets the stage for me. And, uh, you know, I get up early. I'm a very early riser. Um, I, in actually writing this book, I got up at two in the morning, every morning for over a year and wrote until eight. And then I went into the Human Performance Institute, did my job, and then I would come back and, and uh, I never missed a day for over a year. And then I kind of backed off a little bit, but uh, for the next year, but it took me two years just in terms of just putting all the data together. But I get up early. I uh, have routines about, you know, uh, I clean up. I have to make my bed. My mother taught me that in the morning. I'm not allowed to leave my bedroom until my bed is perfect. And uh, then I go in and I, uh, after getting dressed and everything, I go and I check all my emails and respond to the most urgent ones. And then I go back to my things to do list. And it is about as long as any to-do list could ever be. And I check every single item and rewrite everything I haven't done and put stars on it. And that's what, uh, you know, then I check my calendar and make sure everything is in place before I launch the day. Then I have breakfast and I have a religious, you know, for a long, long time, I, I'm a tennis nut. I would play tennis the hottest time of the day, every single day that I could and I wasn't traveling for two hours, I would play with one of our top, we had a tennis academy, so one of our pros, and uh, all of that, and then I try to get my nutrition, diet, I need to have energy. If I don't have energy, I feel like I'm completely um, failing my mission. Um, and so energy for me was the most important thing, and all of these rituals helped me to mobilize it to make sure, and it's directed in the right direction. Yeah, I found for myself, these rituals, these routines, they set those clear boundaries so you don't have to make those decisions that drain that energy. Uh, I am so intrigued, though. 2 a.m., you, you weren't finding that your energy was drained getting up that early? No, I mean, I, I can get up at any time. And the moment I awaken, I have no grogginess. I am so fired up to launch my day. It's like completely weird. Most people don't understand that it takes hours to get I never drink coffee. I never take caffeine, nothing. The moment I wake up, I am literally on fire. And that's, that's how it's been. I think that's all genetic. I don't know where that came from. I absolutely love that. I, I'm so intrigued now. What did you think you were going to be as a kid? You know, I had no clue. All I know is I loved adventure. I loved hmm. pushing the envelope. I was not somebody that was always staying between the lines. 
I loved the outdoors. I had um, a passion for the wilderness and, you know, the American history, the American Indian history, frontier history. I think I was kind of a reborn frontiersman of some kind because all I love, I love adventure. I love climbing 14ers. I love going into places with four-wheel drive vehicles that nobody has ever thought of going into. It's been my whole life. I like pushing the envelope. That's something I, I resonate deeply with. And and so this is, you can see that the background here in terms of your interests. And so it almost seems to me a, a natural progression that you start loving and becoming obsessed with elite performance. What was your first introduction to that? Well, it's a strange thing. I, you know, I received my doctorate uh, in an area that has nothing to do with high performance. I was trained to become in the clinical world, working with in the mental health field and working with broken people. And, um, and I, very early in my career, I went and, you know, got my license, board certified, I mean, uh, my certification, license in uh, psychology, and I received a job as chief psychologist and executive director of a very large community mental health center system that served the whole central and southern part of Colorado, 8,600 square miles and nine offices. I was a very young guy, and, uh, but I, you know, I was a really excited about it and everything, but there was an exercise physiologist by the name of Dr. Joe Vigil, who was in the catchment area, is a catchment area, uh, has a college called Adams State College, and he was a track and fields coach. He's been, you know, one of the most successful in Olympic history, and he and I became really good friends, and he got me into running, and uh, he has all these world-class runners, and he continued to pound me with this question, and I had no answer. He said, Jim, of all that you know as a psychologist, what can you tell me that I can give to my athletes to help them perform better? And I said, Joe, I have no idea. I don't have a clue. I said, it's an interesting question, but I'm, I don't know how to help normal people become extraordinary. I'm pretty good, or I'm getting better at helping sick people get normal or getting well. And uh, so he continued to push me, and I said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll do a worldwide search. I'll find out what's the latest on that, and maybe we can, we can do something together that would be pretty exciting. I can't tell you, I got so on fire. He said, that's going to be one of the biggest. This was in the 70s, and he said, this is going to be a big area. You might as well lead it. You've got a lot of energy. You're excited about stuff. Why don't you go do it? So I resigned to a 23-member board of directors, which was like the biggest shock in the world because we were doing unbelievable things. And they thought it was a ploy for more money. They raised my, my salary significantly. And I said, no, I'm going to become a sports psychologist. And no one had ever heard of such a thing. And uh, they thought I had probably duly lost my mind or that I couldn't handle the stress. But I said, no, I have a vision. I really want to do something. I'd like to be a pioneer in a new area. And uh, then I moved to Denver, opened up a private practice at a place called the University Park Psychological Center. And it started there. And very quickly, I realized that I didn't know anything. I literally didn't know anything. So I decided, where would I go? I went to uh, Jimmy Connors was the most successful competitor in tennis at that time. And the most in incredible competitive, uh, you know, kind of profile. 
and, uh, and there was an opening there for running their whole center down there. And I decided uh, that I would go to the uh, Nick Politeri, I mean, to the, to the whole center at the Jimmy Connors United States Tennis Center. And uh, I spent two years there studying Jimmy Connors. Then I went six years to um, the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy, and that was worth two PhDs to me. I mean, it was, I had 248 of the, I set up my whole research institute there, and it was the, by far the most prolific period of player development I've had in my entire life. And I, that's where I learned all the lessons. And so I really didn't start where most people start. I started um, and kind of caught fire by accident. What was it specifically about that fast learning environment? Um, that, well, I had access to all of these great, great players. I had access to, I'm going to see if I can. I had access to all these great players, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Monica Sellis. It was the greatest area for tennis of player development, probably in the history of tennis. And I had them every day for six years. And I was, you know, I was able to monitor. I used all the sophisticated telemetry, video. I used interviews. I had them fill out questionnaires almost every day. And I began to get a sense of how this human system was designed, how it performs well under pressure, what are the pitfalls. And it was a massive learning curve for me. And then I decided to form a business where I actually felt I, I could do something and offer something substantive. I joined forces with a guy by the name of Dr. Jack Roppel, who had his PhD in biomechanics and in, in bioengineering. And he was the head of the biomechanics lab at the University of Illinois. And we decided to set up something similar to the United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, but to make it as a, a for-profit venture and we call it the Human Performance Institute. And that was, a, that was a living laboratory that helped me distill all these insights that later came. I, I love to learn and I love data. I love science. And I've tried to have one foot in the practical world and one foot in the scientific world. And I think that that has really helped me to stay practical, relevant, but to, to really uh, make sure that I'm anchoring in, in good science before we really talk about something and offer it as, a, as a, some kind of training regimen for anyone who wants to be in an extraordinary path of performance. Yeah, it's so apparent the amount of data both that you're familiar with and then you dive into the details on. I would love to circle back for a minute around just this, this pioneer-esque mentality. And I can only imagine it required a tremendous amount of self-belief to leave that job, that high paying job in a prominent position. Is that what it came down to? You know, it's a really great question. And I, I, I sometimes I think about how the heck did I make that move? Um, and because I had no, I was told by probably, I would say a minimum of 25 people that I respect that there would be no chance that this could be successful, what I was doing. No one had ever done it before. And uh, in, in the way I was planning to do it, and that it would be a, uh, it would it would end up probably bankrupting me, and we would not be successful. And I have to tell you, all those people that I respected, I just blew right through them and said, I I really believe 
something is going to happen here that's going to work out. And I began to realize that if you, the most important resource you have as a human being in terms of getting something done is your energy and recruiting the energy of others and surrounding yourself with really extraordinary people who really believe in the mission. And I found the, the thing I'm most proud of in all the work that I did over all these years is the, is the extraordinary talent base that we assemble, the faculty we had on our um, Human Performance Institute staff was like, for me, the greatest group of people I could ever assemble. And I really feel like a lot of the genius that came out of what we discovered came from the amalgamation of all these great people. They're all very other directed. They're not, none of them were after money, fame, or glory. They just want to make a contribution. And we were all dedicated to try to, to try to help, whether it was special forces, whether it was you know, surgical teams uh, in medicine, whether it was professional athletes, whether it was corporate athletes, we call them in the executive world. Wherever we went, we said, we're going to bring the best we possibly can because uh, everyone benefits when everyone performs at a higher level and does it in a way that's sustainable. Could you guys feel just the magic of that moment and the team you had assembled while you were part of it? Yeah, I mean, I think we all felt, I mean, I, I get notes all the time from people. Uh, they, they refer to it uh, as their Camelot in their life, that they've never experienced anything since I sold the business, the Human Performance Institute, to Johnson & Johnson. And, uh, and then they kind of put their own people and they have their own mix and all that kind of stuff. But when we were there, everyone felt that, this was probably the pinnacle of anything they could ever come to be involved in because they could see the changes we were making in people's lives. It was just stunning. And, and we loved working with each other. We had respect. We all had humility, but we all felt like we came together for a reason. We had a purpose here that was really way beyond any of our own self-interest. And when you assemble that kind of talent and they're directing all of their genius in a in a specific mission i mean it must be what nasa feels on the floor of the space center when they're launching an, a new space craft i mean it's it's so exhilarating to surround yourself with great people who are of the same vision and no one's there for themselves they're all there to try to make us all better yeah, we're certainly going to dive a lot into purpose here and getting that group around it. Uh, but it's funny, just just your ability to, to carve your own path, it, it makes me think of a, a Churchill quote I, I know you love much like myself, and history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. And that, that seems like this is, this is almost the quote of your life here. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that quote from Churchill because uh, we learned that one of the most important uh, dynamics of human performance is the story and more important than what happens to you is the story you tell around what happens to you both before during and after the occurrence and what we learned is that if you script it with your hand in writing before it happens it's one of the most powerful things you can do and that's why i love that quote um history is going to be kind to me for i intend to write it and so we use that all the time with clients and it I will tell you, I came to understand that story is destiny. It's, uh, and it's something we have a lot more control over than we think we do. 
How did you come to that realization, just the overall importance of story? You know, we had over 400,000 people go through the Institute, various programs. And almost every, and one of the main elements when they would come there is to, they write what we call their old story, the things that are, you know, kind of holding them back. What is their thinking? What are, how are they structuring this? What's the story they tell themselves and others around this? And then, and this is around the area of their life they want to grow, that they feel stuck, that something is really not working. And we want to demonstrate them that they can change their lives. They can change them significantly. And the way you start that is you get the right purpose, and that purpose goes to the centerpiece of this new story. And we had them write their new story. And I would read every single story that came through. And I began to, then we tracked these people for long periods of time, as long as 18 months, and we get feedback from them. I'm a research guy, I love data, I love data trends, data sets. The more I can see that data, I often see things differently in the data than other people. That's what I'm always looking for, things that maybe someone missed. But I began to, began to understand the preeminence of a purpose in individuals' lives. It is really the centerpiece. It's the centerpiece of our life. Uh, Mark Twain once said, the two most important days in your life are number one, the day you were born, and the other one is the day you find out why. And the idea that you need to understand why the heck you're here. And so I read all these stories and I began to realize more and more the power that story had. I wrote a whole book called The Power of Story. And that book, um, I think, has changed a lot of people's thinking. We tend to think we just are, you know, we are what we are and we're not. We are what we tell ourselves we are. We, uh, we have our own version of reality. We don't have contact with direct reality. Our senses are filtering everything that comes through and it's crunching this data and our stories can get terribly flawed. They don't take us where we wanna go. They don't reflect reality. They're just really faulty stories. And a faulty story almost always ends in some kind of failure. So we try to help people understand how to tell better stories around everything that's happening to them. Because clearly, the story you tell is more important than actually what happened. What's the process like? I'm assuming this is not just you write your story one time and that's it, right? This is an evolution. And I'm pretty sure you came back with some data in terms of the number of times you write out the story, correct? Yeah, I mean, we uh, in our training program, we had the, the optimal number of times you write that story over several months is six times. And you have to write it fresh and new. What we're trying to do is create is to take this brain, this cognitive executive function, this neuroprocessing system, and load it with a whole new interpretation of this area of your life. If you're a golfer that rather than hating putting, you're gonna create the story that you're gonna be one of the greatest putters in sports history someday. Right now, it's the story has to be grounded in truth. Right now, I'm not a very good putter, but I can tell you, I'm gonna devote whatever energy, whatever uh, time, whatever sacrifices, I will one day be one of the greatest putters in golf history. Watch me. And you tell that story, and you're, the first time you say that, it's like, has virtually no effect whatsoever. But the more you read it, the more it's really self-indoctrination, a new way. What Carol Dweck would say is a, a mindset around this that actually changes the way 
energy flows in your brain. It has a whole new neural network that is actually um, impacting that behavior in a way that it hasn't before. And so writing it frequently, reading it, it's a form of indoctrination for sure. It's training. It's what I call mental training. And uh, I, I've made so many changes in the way people think. And they say, I'll never change my thinking on that. Well, just give me a little time. I guarantee you, we'll change that thinking. If you follow these protocols, that thinking will change. Yeah. And uh, so the brain is very plastic. It's very uh, open to new learning. And if it, once you tell it, the brain exists for one reason, and that is to give you what you need and want. And if you tell it what it's supposed to have and how it's supposed to operate, give it the correct operating information, it's amazing what it can do. But it's loaded with so much junk, with so much baggage, with so much flawed thinking, flawed data, what I call bad coding. You've got to get the bad coding out and the good stuff loaded in. And when you do that, the system runs so much more magnificently and you're much more likely to get what you need and want. Yeah, it, it's re really remarkable. It's almost addition by subtraction there. Uh, eliminate all those old beliefs. And this work has had tremendous impact on my thinking. And it's, it's pretty remarkable to think about that the brain's actually rewiring. Um, and, and those mindset shifts sometimes, it, you don't even need the advice. You just need to know they're possible and what it does. Um, so, so thank you for 100%. that. Yeah, it's 100%. Been, it's, it's been really it's very liberating to know that you can change the operating system. You just need to know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be intrigued to know, I mean, 400,000 plus people you dealt with, most of these people, elite performers, what element of this do the most elite performers have trouble with? Um, it's, uh, you know, it's the full spectrum. Everyone has, uh, all kinds of issues around this that, that really kind of block their ability to be their very best. Sometimes it's nerves, but so often it's actually their own belief about what they can do. Um, there's a whole area of research that's really interesting. I've tracked for years and it's this whole issue of self-esteem. And, you know, we believed for a long time that self-esteem was like the most important thing that you could have and that parents decided to go out and give their, their kids a lot of, you know, pats on the back and trophies and all kinds of things because it would build their belief. But the belief wasn't really, if everyone gets a trophy, that belief is not grounded in the real world. And so we saw that there were three groups. One was those with low self-esteem and they have a real tough time breaking new barriers, risk-taking, handling failure and so forth. And then you have the group that has really high esteem that they just believe they're pretty much invincible. And they also have serious trouble and they avoid getting any, any situation going that where they might fail. So they avoid failure because they've kind of been the chosen one and they don't want anyone to know that all the beliefs that they have about them and how they feel about themselves might be a house of cards. The whole thing might be a ruse. And then the people who have what I call stable self-esteem those are the ones who continue to find ways to ground themselves in the truth and to really be an optimist when it comes to what pushing back, it's what, we, what Carol Dweck would say, kind of a growth mindset, that I'm not fixed at birth. It's not a fixed kind of ability to do, do things. I'm actually moving the needle if I get the, the right components. So I can pretty much be whatever I want within reason if I'm willing to invest the energy, which is the key element, 
which most people call effort. And I have a purpose that drives the intensity. It's like for me writing the book, uh, leading with character, I've never written a book that I just wanted to get out there and have some more visibility. And, you know, it was just kind of a filler, so to speak. I have to have a new breakthrough of thinking in my own life that actually is validated in my own life. And when I find something that I think is really exciting and a kind of a new, something I had never really come to understand, I get passionate about it. That's the only way I could get up to in the morning and do that for a full 12 months of the year. And then the next 12 months were nearly that rigorous. Um, but I was passionate to try to dig into this because I thought there was real value there for me and value for the people I care about and valuable for anyone who's really interested in living the best life possible and bringing out the best version of themselves in a high stress environment. So yeah. uh, I always ask people, what if the person you were met the person you could have been at the end of your life? How do you think you'd measure up? And it's like, we don't really know what we're capable of. All I know is I have seen things happen that absolutely are impossible. But it's because those folks never saw the limitation of what they could do. They never really, they didn't know how far they could go. They just kept pushing the envelope, doing the right things. And suddenly they're in a position where they have no equal. They've actually broken every record that we currently have. And that record will be broken probably in a week. Once people understand, like Roger uh, Bannister's Four Minute Mile, it was like obliterated. It's like ridiculous now. Or Dan Jansen's 3576. When, when everyone thought that the barrier that was, a, it was, you know, with physics, no one's going to be able to, to skate around in a circle faster than 36 seconds. And he broke it at 3576. That's like a joke now. As soon as he proved that it could be done, I mean, it was like everywhere people were breaking it. So for me, it's like helping people understand what's the process and starting to believe there's so much more inside of you if you can just keep digging. Yeah, just that, that entire mindset shift when you know it's possible. I, I, I'm always trying to, to battle and weigh between the, the self-confidence, but like you mentioned, having that stable self-esteem. Do you think at the beginning stages of this, people almost have to have somewhat, for lack of a better word, delusional optimism to, to go after some of these big pursuits in life? You know, I think, you know, I think, and it has been for me, I never knew where I would end up. And I still have this nagging sense that I, I, I could do more. I could be more. I could be better in everything I do. And it's like, but I don't feel like I have left a lot on the table because I'm always trying to find ways to, to expand my limits, uh, even at, in, at an advanced age, I feel that. And I think that everyone has to grapple with this in some way. You have to kind of confront, you know, what your limits are, and you have to find an area that you're willing to, to take risks and to find a, you know, kind of a pathway that ignites your passion ignites uh, a whole series of really positive and powerful emotions. And everyone has that. It's just when I work with people, I'm always trying to, to help them discover kind of what it is that's gonna open this envelope of excitement and sense of adventure. Um, 
and risk-taking. And, and you're right, it's a balance between confidence and arrogance. And the, mod and the modulator there is humility. And I think the most important element in any human being is this sense of humility, no matter where you are. And I always judge a person's real professionalism by not just their competence, but their humility, which says, you know, I got a lot to learn here. And I try to apply that in my own life because sometimes you kind of feel like you're kind of, you know, you're out in front in some area and really feel whether you're a race car driver or whether you're a tennis player or a surgeon. When you stop learning, the game is over. You have to have enough humility, but you can't be dealing with too much insecurity. So insecurity has to be balanced with confidence and count confidence has to be balanced with humility. When you get that balance right, you know, you're always just chasing new learning. You're just trying to push the envelope back. There's no end point that you have to get to, to feel good about yourself. You're actually doing it for the right reason. You're on, you're aligned with what your purpose is and you're trying to do something that really not for yourself. It's actually kind of a, transcendent sense of purpose. I'm doing it for a cause bigger than myself. And I just hope that I can bring value to wherever my brain takes me. And I don't know how I ended up with these gifts and these deficiencies, but I'm going to take it forward as long as I can. And hopefully uh, I can have a positive impact on, uh, on some folks. And that's because it definitely is something I believe is valuable from my perspective. Oh, I absolutely agree, Dr. Lair. I mean, your work and then the combination of certain mentors and other people in my life, they, they unlocked that for me. And I kind of think of it like a flowing river towards the path of least resistance. And when you're operating like that, decision-making, everything else just, just flows so seamlessly. It's a, it's a beautiful transcendent experience. I am wondering. Yeah, I think I think everyone is looking for that, and I'm grateful that that, that what some of the work I've done has actually contributed to you and maybe others, maybe finding that that path. You were mentioning a few minutes ago just about how how obsessed you were with, with this new discovery, and it was almost this whole mindset shift for you. And I, I know it resulted in you writing a book. When you come across one of these moments in time where it's this almost epiphany-like moment. What, what are the next few days? What's the next week like for you during those times? Well, I, you know, sometimes I have these epiphanies and they turn out to be complete. They're <laughs> complete train wrecks. You Don't know? we all? The data, I look at the data and I say, that's it, that's it. And then I check it out and get real grounding on it. And it's a complete nothing. It's a nothing burger. And uh, so, uh, you know, when I have that epiphany, I always think, Oh my God, this is exciting. And then I go, wait a minute, let's just look at this again. This could be uh, one of those false positives that, you know, I've had before in my life. And then to write a book about it, you better do your homework, Jim, because uh, you better check this out every way from Sunday because you're really kind of, you know, saying some things that may not hold up. And so I love epiphanies, but sometimes they need to be grounded in the real world and, you know, we all make uh, mistakes in terms of looking at things and thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be a gold mine. It turns out to be uh, quite the opposite. Talking about uncovering these things and then they need to be grounded in reality. 
and we were talking a little while ago just about facing these hard truths. And I know that's difficult to, to look yourself in the mirror, but when people can know what's on the other side, why do you think more people don't do it? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question too. And, you know, um, self-reflection is, is really um, opening up a little bit of a risk here. If I, if I start asking questions of myself about my character and I start reflecting on who I really am, and that's kind of what, how I define character is who I really am and when no one is watching, but who I really am in two areas, and that is my performance skills, my ability to go into a high stress arena and be a great achiever. And then there's this performance character. I mean, then there is this what I call moral and ethical character, which is really the skills I possess for real in terms of my interactions, my connections, my treatment of other people. And when I get into that and I start looking particularly in this, this moral and ethical character, boy, I go into, I mean, this is nuclear material because our self-esteem is so closely allied with our character. If I attack your character, it's like you'll defend it to the nth degree. It's almost like your psychological survival is at stake. If I question your integrity or your honesty or your goodness, or your caring or your capacity for love or kindness or compassion or even humility or patience. Some of those are going to be like they're hot coals to touch. And so when you start asking people to reflect on those, which I believe is the most important dimension of a human being. And I had nothing in my training as a psychologist in all these years. This has been an evolutionary tale. I've ended up here because the data brought me here. And I'm happy to talk about how all of that evolved because it's, to me, it's, I got to this place by accident. I, I didn't get there by knowing a long time ago, this is where we're going to end up where the data in this performance psychology area, or even in all the related areas of research. Um, it just, it didn't, it didn't take me there. So when I, when I look at, what is really important in my life and I start being more reflective and I kind of see some deficiencies. So my awareness starts saying, Hey, wait a minute, Jim, well, you're not who you really think you are. You've got some serious issues here. I mean, that's quite disturbing. And so people, uh, they're, they're less inclined to, uh, to go where it hurts. And there's so much pain, so much, you know, during this pandemic, um, there's just so many things happening that are pushing people outside their comfort zone. And I say, you know, you've got a chance to step out of the storm for a while and kind of enter this reflective moment and do some course correcting in a way you may never have another opportunity to do so. You have a chance to look at your life, seriously examine what the heck's going on. What do you say is important? What is the legacy you want to leave behind? Who are you really when it comes to, to leading in, in the areas that matter to you? And that reflection is not easy. And so it may not always deliver what you want in terms of answers. And so people, the most evolved people are the most aware people. They've gone in and they've really looked at it. And awareness is 
the window through which we all have to go to make changes. If you're not, you cannot change what you're not aware of. And if you're a bull in a china closet, you have no awareness. You know, you might be an unbelievable high achiever, but you have, but you resist like crazy um, any introspective work because you just there's so many dark, you know, kind of dragons in that space that you do not want to awaken. So you just live your life as if none of that is important. And I've, you know, I've met people who are world, I mean, they are so world renowned, but they can't even be in a room by themselves. They have to have someone in the same room when they're sleeping. They can't stay alone because they are afraid of what might come out of that aloneness. They really are petrified of what's really inside. So it's a, it's a, it's a process, and, but it's not always easy. It's probably, you know, quite discomforting when you, the, the deeper you go. Yeah, I'm hoping we can hit on that process in a minute. I, I'm wondering, though, is, is there an elite performer, maybe in athletics, that, that you've had the, the honor to work with that when you think of awareness— uh, this person just comes to mind, has really put in the work to develop that? Well, everyone that I work with, that's the process. We try to, first of all, we try to determine what's reality, what's really going on. You know, there's the, there's the real world and then there's the world you've created. And I can't work with anyone unless I go to what's real. So we start with the truth. And, and the truth is sometimes very, very disturbing because we build these um, stories around what's happening. And we kind of what I learned, um, you know, as we went and looked at all this, the research and really uh, neuroplasticity and all the neuro neurological uh, research that is kind of groundbreaking, I think, in terms of understanding how our brains work, we uh, we have a very flawed, vulnerable operating system, particularly in the moral and ethical realm. It has so many holes. It's, it's no wonder we're always struggling because it's just flawed from the get-go. The input's into that sucker, and we have no idea why, where it came from. We just suddenly have this source code that we reference for making decisions about right and wrong. We don't have any idea where it came from. We think it might have come from parents, but parents get it wrong a lot, a lot of the time. Maybe it came from culture. Maybe it came from, um, from you know, your experiences in a, in a peer group or gang. And sometimes that's all. Maybe it came from religious uh, teachers. And sometimes they get it completely wrong. And when you look at all the inputs, it's no wonder that we all have a little bit different understanding of what's morally right and wrong. So we're trying to my <clears throat> my work with uh, anyone is to let's take a look at what's really happening let's get a real shot of the real you and then let's take a look at what you say matters most to you we go to the end of your life and we start you know having you think no one wants to go to the end of your life we start asking you things like you know what at the end of your life, what do you want etched on your on your tombstone? What are the words that you would like to be represented there that truly reflect who you were when you were here? And they don't like doing that. And then they start doing it. And what is amazing to them is what comes up. 
And I've done that with thousands and thousands of people in group situations and in private situations. And it's always the same. No one puts on there that I was number one in my sport or that I achieved uh, CEO and, and amassed a fortune. It's all, it goes the ultimate, what I call the hidden scorecard that matters most to everyone, which is the most important element in one's self-esteem is your treatment of others. They want to have words like integrity, filled with integrity, uh, loving, kind father, mother, son or daughter. They want to have uh, the word um, maybe humility, trustworthy, trusting, inspirational, engaged. Uh, they want to have words that connect them to other people. And they begin to realize their life, the, the ledger that really matters, it really isn't about them. It's the impact they have on others that is the ultimate scorecard in their life. And if they haven't scored well on that, there, there are not enough extrinsic markers of success like fame, money, it's a black hole that cannot be filled. And the only way you can fill it is understanding that we are wired to be social creatures. And this comes from evolutionary forces for thousands of years, where those that were connected to others, caring, if you were loving and caring and kind and supportive, you had a much better chance of succeeding and, and, and living. And it really wasn't about you, it was your attempts to help the entire village or whatever group you have survive. And they then could bring their progeny forward. And that's deeply embedded in our psyche, but it's not obvious. So people don't use that scorecard and they're always trying to fill that void. And uh, so what I'm trying to do is to work backwards. Let's go back to the end of your life and then let's move forward and let's take a look at where your energy, who are you now? Are you gonna end up in that place and what are the things that matter most and how can you use your achievement skills in high performance to actually build that pathway so um it's a it's a process that i take everyone through and that we did at the institute and had profound i mean once that's nailed down it's like you can't you'll never be the same you can't operate the same once your eyes are open and some people might want to cuss you for doing that because it, you have a whole new level of responsibility in your life that's no longer the same. You're talking about that process. I'm thinking about the person who's hearing this, and maybe they don't have access to, to, to attend an, an institute anywhere, and they're wondering how they do this on their own. And I don't want to get too nuanced here, but are there parameters? Is there a certain structure they can go about, even the setting that they're in, just to, just to maximize this a bit? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's fundamentally what I outline in the Leading with Character book. It's basically this notion of facing uh, the reality of, of who you are now and who you would like to be and actually confront, you know, whether or not you're likely to get where you want to be at the end of your life. And that every single day, is another day to peel back more truth and more of an understanding of what is the best version of yourself? Who are you at your absolute best? And who are you at your absolute moral best? When you treat people, whether it's the valet attendant or whether it's someone who's cut you off in traffic, um, what is this person that, um, really represents the, the pinnacle of what you would like to be for yourself. 
And that doesn't mean you're not going to be tough-minded. I mean, these are folks that, I mean, we've trained sumo wrestlers. We've trained, I trained uh, Ray Mancini in his, in his fight with Hector Macho Camacho. Um, and, I mean, you can be an unbelievable fighter if you're fighting for the right reason and you get it all wired up. You're no push. You're no pushover. Just because you have compassion and caring for others, those are not soft and make you soft. They make you a well-rounded person. And when you fight, you fight for the right reasons. But you have an operating code that takes precedence over everything. And so, um, you know, if you're interested, there are ways to get that process. And But there's no door through which you, um, you know, uh, can access this better than the door of awareness to my to my. Uh, in my experience. So we start there and you, you ask some tough questions and you start with purpose. What the heck is this? Why am I here? I won the, the lottery of life through no effort of my own. What the heck is my, my life all about? And how do I purport myself in a way that at the end of my life, I feel whether it's long or short, uh, I was worthy of this gift. I did something and it really had nothing to do with me. It had to do with the impact I had in the time that I was here on the world I leave behind, on the people I leave behind. Yeah, I, th I think one of the things your new book, Leading with Character, really brings to light even is that this is, this is a muscle, and, and you can strengthen that character muscle, and it, it takes hard work and, and daily practice. Um, and you outline much of that in the book, which is incredibly helpful. Uh, I, I am wondering, though, are, are there certain mindsets or just overall character traits that we just can't seem to train in humans? Well, I mean, there are deficiencies that often are, you know, very, very difficult to root out because they occurred at a time in your life when you were very vulnerable. You know, if you have abusive parenting or sexual abuse or physical abuse, emotional abuse as a child, you know, there's a lot of scar tissue there and you probably have to work at that for the rest of your life. That's why working with parents and getting parents to understand the power they have in a child's life to enable them to, to have an extraordinary life. My mother and father were extraordinary people. They were the greatest gifts I could possibly have. And they kind of enabled me to have this sense of excitement. I'm not worried about, I have to fulfill this in order to feel like a decent human being, I'm really driven by something else. And so if, if I'm driven by deficiency needs, I have to fill the holes. It's very different than if I'm driven by growth needs where I just wanna grow and become stronger and better and be a, be a more fully functioning person. So if you have a lot of that scar tissue from your early years, you have to work harder. It's just a lot harder. But you're actually, you know, you can clean house. You can clean up a lot of that. If you're willing to go to work and a lot of it's done, just like you have a damaged muscle, of maybe you, you went into rehab and you have a you know, serious injury to your knee or to bicep or whatever, the process of rehabilitation is exactly the same process, physical rehabilitation as it is emotional, mental, and even spiritual. That you have to go in and you have to constantly work, you need recovery. Then you need to go in and work those muscles very softly, 
and you expose it to minimal doses of stress and then a little bit more and you have to stay with it. And eventually, if you work at that enough, you spawn healing. And it's interesting that exposure to stress, minimal stress, or sometimes really unbelievable stress, as long as it's not too damaging, is the stimulus for all growth. If you don't go in and stress it, you're never going to grow. And recovery is when you grow. So you have to have this balance of stress and recovery. And you have to have that just like they do in rehabilitation. If you're going to rehabilitate something, you have to expose the damage. You have to, first of all, allow it to heal as much as possible. Then you have to start exposing that damaged muscle or the leg or the knee to stress, minimal doses. Then you progressively add more stress. And eventually that leg, that bicep or that knee may be capable of handling more stress than it ever had, more than you ever thought possible in your life. But you're going to have to put in the work. And that work is laying down energy deposits. You're giving life to those muscles that you want to help grow and become more robust. And that same analogy is true emotionally. It's true spiritually. You have to do the hard lifting. If you don't do the lifting, the muscles will just be what they are. And you don't know how strong you are until you're tested. And life is testing us. And this pandemic is testing us in ways we never thought we'd ever, ever see in our lifetimes. Yeah, that was a very clear analogy that certainly helps paint that picture. And you were even touching on something that was a really eye-opening thing for me, and that was around oscillation and the, the stress and then recover, the sprint and lay off. And that's something you think's essential um, in pretty much every avenue of our lives. That's correct, right? You know, the thing that one of the big insights that I had, I, I began to realize that the most important resource we have is energy. And it's not time. We're not going to be judged by how long we live. We're going to, in terms of the value of our life, it's going to be whatever time we had, the energy we brought to that time aligned with what we really felt was important, what our values were. And so you can have a short life or a long life and the whole difference, differentiation in terms of success or failure will be what you did with your energy. And if you align that energy with whatever is important to you, you're likely to have the sense of fulfillment that will come because, you know, energy, we are in a sense, what we are is we're reservoirs of potential energy. And that energy comes through the physical cells of the body, to the mitochondria of the body in the union of oxygen and glucose. You have to take care of yourself. You have to eat right, exercise. I mean, you have to be as fit as you can for oxygen transport. The union of oxygen and glucose at the cellular level produces energy. Without energy, we're nothing. We can have a long life, but if you don't have energy, then life becomes an absolute nightmare. So this idea of managing energy, and when we invest in something, when we give our, when we take energy out of our bodies and invest it in another, energy is life. When you take energy out of your body and you invest it, let's say in the muscle kindness, you give life to kindness. You cause that dynamic to grow. When you give uh, energy to cynicism or sarcasm or anger, every time you go there, it gives it life. That neurological pathway is actually building myelin, which is that um, 
that substance that is like a a tape around uh, it's it's a conductor preserves that neurological impulse that energy impulse and the more we run energy down a pathway the more myelin is produced and the more likely this will become something that holds up and, and that's what athletes are doing tennis players golfers when they're practicing they're if they're doing it properly they're building myelin in the right direction well that understanding of stress energy expenditure for me is stress and then when you expend energy you're you're expending you know all these chemicals all this glucose and oxygen and all these neurotransmitters in the brain and all these different reservoirs that produce this energy they need to be refreshed they need to be renewed and we need there's physical stress there's emotional stress there's mental stress and there's spiritual stress. And there's also a need then for physical recovery, emotional recovery. Emotional recovery comes when you find yourself becoming more positive, more optimistic, when you're experiencing more positive emotions, joy, happiness, love, compassion. Kindness is actually healing. Compassion, whether it's self-compassion or compassion for others, is a healing emotion. It's an emotion that actually it's, there's, a, there's a neurotransmitter, I mean a neuropeptide, that is actually released in those very special emotions called oxytocin. And it actually is a healing, it actually is a modulator against stress. There is uh, mental stress and mental recovery. You get mental recovery when you change those neurons that were expending energy, you allow them to cool to actually replenish so when you do something completely different you're actually causing recovery to occur neurologically in those uh, executive functions and then spiritually when you renew your purpose when you reignite your passion around what's important to you your values what's most important that actually renews your spirit again your sense that this is what you should be doing in life that's spiritual renewal and it could be anything from meditation, prayer, could be anything as long as it's a, it's a practice that renews that sense of um, connection to what's important to you. So the, we are basically oscillatory creatures. We expand energy and we must, must recover energy. When we have an arrhythmia in that, it causes the entire system to go off kilter. So if you don't spend energy, you're going to get in trouble. So as you get older, you might think you need to spend less energy. You don't need to oscillate. The less you expend energy, the quicker you're going to check out. You need to keep those engines of energy. You need to have stress in your life. And as long as you continue to have stress in your life, you're going to keep this whole system alive and functioning. And if you don't cause recovery to occur, then you're going to burn out. You're going to call, you're going to you're going to say old oh, man's stress is what caused the imbalance. It's actually insufficiency of recovery that caused the problem. So you have to have stress and recovery and balance, and you must pay both um, whatever is necessary for you to be a big spender. You want to be a big spender? You have to have great recovery mechanisms in your life. If you want to be a big investor, you have to have big deposits from which to make withdrawals. And so we spend a lot of time, how do we get recovery physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, so you can be in the fast lane um, and making all kinds of withdrawals 
on the stress side. I feel lucky that was just a, a masterclass there. It's, it's apparent you're the one who, who wrote the book here. But uh, in your book, The Power of Full Engagement, one of the, my favorite takeaways was around the most elite tennis players. And it was actually what they were doing in between the sets in terms of recovery, correct? That led to the highest performance? Yeah, I spent, uh, spent hundreds and hundreds of hours videotaping the top tennis players. And we had uh, all this fairly at that time, sophisticated telemetry around heart rate, um, EEG, and so on and so forth. And we realized that all these, you know, there's 25 seconds between points in tennis. And uh, some were using it with great skill. And we would notice that players who were actually performing really well, but can continue to maintain their ideal performance state, they were strategic in how they used that 25 seconds for brilliant recovery. So we ritualized that and we learned from the very best players that the shortest we had at that time was Steffi Graf with 16 seconds. But if you race through it or you don't do it, the body loves routine. And uh, when the heart rates of those individuals who were really practicing this, their heart rates would elevate during the points and then there was a nice recovery and they would get very close to an ideal heart rate before they start the next point and then their heart rates would come up again and those where their heart rate stayed high were either excessively angry their emotions were kicking in they were nervous anxious it was unbelievable we looked at that data and then when people gave up and they didn't care anymore, their heart rates got very low it as if they just, what we call it in tennis tanking. And those that were oscillating brilliantly throughout the match, obviously they were taking in enough glucose, they were very fit, they could handle it from a physical perspective, but emotionally and mentally, they were actually quite, quite skilled in being able to deal with bad line calls, with uh, you know bad mistakes, all the disappointments that occur in the course of a match but they had a routine for handling it. So we taught them how to walk. I called it the matador walk. They put their shoulders back. We know that the facial muscles actually trigger autonomic, autonomic nervous system reactors in specific directions that are similar to what those are. So confidence and calmness and the look you have on your physical body. I went and interviewed one of Spain's most most well-known famous bullfighters and I went all the way to Spain to have an interview with him which was a very big deal at that time about how they control fear when you have a when you have a bull in front of you that if you choke choking there will get you gored and um, he looked at me and he said you don't really know that answer he said just look at me on video, look at me now. How am I sitting? How am I walking? He said, we have learned the, the bull can read my body language in a, in a fraction of a second. If I have any look of fear, if you look at a bullfighter, no one's walking around and, you know, moping because they, they're having a bad day or, you know, they just look a little bit lack of energy. They're done, they're cooked. So he learned they, in the training, they, they train how to walk, how to carry their head and their shoulders, the look on their face, so that when they confront the bull, the bull sees no weakness. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a, and plus it also helps to create the, 
chemicals associated with fearlessness in them, a sense of belief. So I brought that back and I spend hours, I spent hours teaching players how to walk, how to develop this matador look on the court, how to carry their rackets, how to walk down the course, relax, but showing great belief in themselves. And they began to realize that's another competitive edge. And it's true in all walks of life. We all have an energy signature. We all either look confident or we look like we're a little bashful or shy or whatever. If you want to change that, we can work from the inside out by your thinking and by working with, you know, journaling, by working with um, a, a lot of the interior, you know, kind of work that we can do, or we can work from the outside in. The system is fully integrated. So you, if you work with every dimension, all the dimensions, you're likely to get some real traction. You mentioned this is applicable in all avenues of life. And I think one of the clearest examples of this, uh, I, I spent a number of years coaching and you want to see how your body action or, or, or body language can trigger people around you. Just just look at the, the athletes you're working with. They, they pick up on that same thing in, in the corporate world as well. It's 100% true. If you look at uh, the body language of Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player in history, you look at his body language in practice. He had more intensity, more ferocity, more that he cared, that he was all in, fully engaged in practice. And he ignited the best in everyone. He felt his job was to set the example of intensity and caring and engagement in a way that no one had ever seen before, certainly in practice. But he believed it was more important in practice than it was because games were easy. Practice is where you actually lay the foundation for success. And so we have opportunities to practice every day when we're not, uh, you know, on stage, but we actually practice how we look, how we carry ourselves, how we do the work and invest our energy so that when it really is important, we've already done the preparation and we're ready to go. And the real time show is actually easier than the practice. Hmm. So much wisdom, so much knowledge, so many years of experience. What do you think has just been the most important insight you've uncovered throughout all of your years of research? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It takes a little reflection. I would say most people are unaware that it is their energy that makes everything happen. That you're, you're always, every moment of consciousness, you're giving life to something. And it could be something that you really want to grow, but often it's exactly the opposite. And one of those things that you're giving life to is your private voice. I spent an awful lot of time helping athletes, helping high performers understand this private voice that no one hears that'll be with them until their death. And that is an inner coach. And that your inner coach is deciding pretty much where your energy is going to flow. Most people believe that just that when you talk to yourself or when you think a thought, it's just like moving air around inside your head. But you, for every thought has a, creates a trace, a trace, and that with repeated investments actually creates a neurological pathway, has a real impact on this neurological um, operating system that is so magnificent. It's always on, it's always listening. And if you wanna clean up that system, you want to get rid of the bad coding, you have to be much more conscious 
that whatever you give your energy to, you are giving life to. So if you want, you know, to feel like a victim in life, if you want to feel like, you know, you really are not as talented or you, you can't do what other people do, just keep giving that life and that will become your story. and That'll become pretty much the way it works. But because we have control of human beings over our energy, there's not a lot we can control, but we can control where our energy goes in a very significant way. If we just take responsibility for it, where our effort, what are we going to put our effort and energy into? And for, the, for me, that's one of the most important things that people just don't get. Hmm. That we know effort's important, but they don't realize that you're having an impact every moment you're conscious, you're giving life to something. And you want to make sure that whatever it is, it's aligned with your, with where you want to go in life. Because energy is what lights the path. Energy is what creates all the good things in your life. And if you're out of energy, you're in trouble. And if you don't realize the power of your energy, not much is probably going to happen unless it's pure luck. Dr. Laird, it's so funny. I, I always know how excited I am about an episode uh, because of how interested I am in, in going back in particular moments of the interview. And and that minute right there was just, uh, that was unbelievable. So I'm so glad you encapsulated that perfectly. Talking about energy expenditure though, and we're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. Was there anything that you spent time and too much energy on for a lot of your career? And then as you advanced, you realized just wasn't worth it? That's another interesting question. I've never thought about that. I mean, you know, I've gotten on the wrong path um, with, you know, I get excited about something and I pursue it and I try to look at all the research and collect data on it. It turned out to be a complete waste of time and energy, but it taught me at least that's not the way to do it, you know, and that it also really affirms that I've got a long way to go. There's teaches humility. And, you know, when I look back on my life, I wish I had been more aligned with these understandings. I would, have, I would give anything to have these insights much earlier in my career. I wish I'd devoted more of my best and full energy, my full engagement, which I believe is the greatest gift we have to give. It's the, it's the best energy, quantity, quality, focus, and intensity that I can give. That's my greatest gift to the world because you can move mountains with that. And when you give it, it shows you care. That's people don't want your time unless they have your energy because mm -hmm. you give life out of your body to them and you can be with someone for hours and never really connect with them energy wise. So you get no, in fact, you might get the reverse return. They believe you don't care. So I, if I were to look back over my life, I wish I had devoted more of my full energy to my family, to my kids, to, I mean, I think I've done a pretty good job, but the more I understood it, the more I realized that is how you create an extraordinary impact in a person's life is that every moment you are with them, it's not the amount of time you have with them, but what kind of energy did you create in the time you were there? Were you fully there or were you more on your Blackberry or your, or your iPhone? Were you, where were you? And, and they, the human system is very, very sensitive to lapses or drops in engagement. You can tell if you're, talking to someone and on the phone and they're watching a TV program or they're doing a text message on the other end, you can sense immediately they're disengaged from you and your connection to them is I'm not as important as I thought I might be. Something is more important than I am. 
And I wish I had understood that when I was much younger, where I could actually apply that in all the dimensions of my life, most importantly with family, because that for me is the, is the only thing that actually has no equal. Yeah, the the power and full engagement. It, it's a book uh, I gift a lot uh, to close friends, family, and just being a young father right now, being fully there with my energy uh, for the family. It, it's, it's something 100%. I continue to go back to. So two quick ones, your work. Uh, I, I've obviously tooted your horn enough in terms of how much of an impact it's had on me. Is, is there a couple books uh, from other people that throughout your life had a tremendous impact? Well, I would have to say that Viktor Frankl's book, um, The Man's Search for Meaning, if I had an opportunity to meet with him, have dinner with him, it's had a huge impact on my thinking. I mean, it was, it's a brilliant, it's a very small little book, Man's Search for Meaning. Probably many of your listeners have. I have read that book. It's one of those books I can read over and over and over again. But I, I mean, I'm a voracious reader. I'm reading two or three or four books every week. Um, and I'm always just looking for something that will light my soul up. It gives me a new insight into something. And I've had lots and lots of <clears throat> great researchers. Um, the self-determination movement with uh, Desi and, and Ryan, um, their work in self-determination, you know, gave me this sense that, you know, we were on the right track and that there is this capacity we have for self-determination. We can have the life we want if we really, really do it purposefully. And that's in my book, this building of a personal credo for me is the most important thing we can do to really live the life that is actually, so we know where our energy should go. The credo is, the most intentional, most deliberate articulation of what matters to you with the core of your life, that sense of purpose, what, what are the values that are most important? And then how, in fact, do you uh, engineer your life so that that becomes the reality of how you operate and you hold yourself accountable every day? And the program that this Leading with Character is, it accompanies, there's a journal a journal that covers 150 days. And every day it's a scripted um, uh, activity that you write for 10 minutes a day. And that 10 minutes, all of that is geared toward building this remarkable, what is your personal credo? Most organizations have a credo, but most people have never thought about, they just kind of inherited something. They never really thought about where it came from. Well, you're going to take this now because it's this—it's really the most important document you'll have to, for the rest of your life. And it's always evolving. It's always changing with new insights. But it's yours. You own it. You're not leasing it. You don't somehow inherit it from someone else. You don't just take theirs on because someone told you to. This is the way in which you are going to define success of your life in the most ultimate sense. And uh, it's yours. It's self-determined. You have a self-determined life based on what matters most to you. And that that 150-day journaling is hard work. I mean, it's, nothing comes from just waking up in the morning and saying, oh, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Let's do it. It doesn't work that way. The human system does not work that way. You want something, you have to put the work in. And what does that mean? It means you have to invest the energy 
investing energy gives it life. And if you've got your, your energy investments aligned with what matters to you, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, that is the biggest insight that I think we have as human beings. We can change our destiny if we change the inputs that we give through our energy to what our goal is and what our mission is. That's how it works. Whew. If that doesn't get you fired up right now, uh, I'm not really sure what is. And it's so funny being the high performer that you are. You actually answered our, uh, our final question on who you'd, who'd sit down with, with dinner for. Uh, and so you just brought up Victor Frankel there. So I, I love that. Uh, an amazing encapsulation. Uh, Dr. Jim Lehrer, uh, I've mentioned previously just the impact you've had on me. Uh, so I'm hoping a lot of the listeners who haven't been exposed to you uh, can be impacted by you as well. Where do you want them staying connected, picking up uh, your previous work and then your newest book, Leading with Character? Well, um, you can go to you can go on LinkedIn. You can go on my website, which is jim Lair L-O-E-H-R dot com, jim Lair at, I mean, dot com. And uh, you can go on LinkedIn, um, I'm there, um, and you can order it on Amazon or order it wherever, but you'll have a complete list of all the books and things that I've done. And hopefully there's something there that can contribute in a positive way to your evolution, um, because we're all learning. We're all trying to get better, and I can tell you, I'm trying to get better every day. <laughs> well, Dr. Jim Lair, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed the, the conversation we've had. You had some great questions, and I just hope we created some value. Most certainly. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.